Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me is... Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. Well, with you in Scotland. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, no, I'm not in Scotland. I'm in Australia, Matt. But you're all the way in Edinburgh, Scotland, home of the inventor of the television, John Logie Bird. In many ways, our enemy as an audio format. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the wheels spinning. <laughs> I, I swing down in Australia, though, Ian. Uh, look, lovely. I'm a bit sunburned and it's like 17 degrees today and I'm all red in the face. It's uh, quite embarrassing, but the topic for this episode is... This week, we're going to have a golden moment and I'm going to take this one if that's all right with you, Ian. Um, um, Matt, before we start, actually, I'm, I'm always a bit like golden moments of all the topics I'm never that convinced by because they always think it's going to be some schmulty story. Schmulty, is that a word? It's going to be one of them stories which is just like got saccharine all through it and it's all like oh and then he did this he did that but then oh didn't everything turn out nice you know it, or it's i don't know if it's my thing the golden moments well that's weird because i'm i'm actually doing this story because i was inspired by your wonderful episode uh that you guys should listen to about the first ever modern olympics in 1896 and it inspired me to tell the story of what's often referred to as the first ever world cup Wow. Well, golden moments. I mean, gold was worth more back then, so I'm happy to have it from the past, like way back <laughs> when there was still a gold standard that actually meant something, Matt. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm about. As soon as oil takes over, I'm out. Well, most football fans will tell you that the first ever World Cup was held and won by Uruguay in 1930, and that's the, the FIFA-sanctioned World Cup. But actually, 11 years earlier, there was an an international invitational tournament, which was the first of its kind. And that's often argued that that was the first ever World Cup. So it's held in 1909 and 1911 in Turin. um, And it's the Sir Thomas Lipton Trophy. However, there's actually something that predates that. Um, But this has blown my mind, Matt. How... How have I never heard of this? The, the World Cup started in 1930. Quiz questions, pub quizzes, and that's the end of it. But actually, even the Sir Thomas Lipton Trophy in 1909 and 1911, there was actually something predating that in 1908 called the Tornio Internationale Stampa Sportiva, which was also in Torino, in Italy, and it, held, it featured teams from Italy, France, Switzerland and Germany. And the Swiss team uh, were eventually the winners. They won 3-1 in the final. But the problem with that tournament is, and you'll love this, Ian, there was no English teams competing in it, and therefore it wasn't seen as truly international. It didn't have the pedigree in 1908 because there was no English teams. So... Um, it's, it's... Well, we've talked about this before, Matt, on the podcast, about how this English exceptionalism... And uh, you're in Scotland now, so you'll be well aware of it just across the border. But, you know, the fact that the English FA, the English Football Association, is not called that. It's called the FA. The the British Open Golf Tournament isn't called the British Open. It's called the Open. Exactly. This level of pomposity. I mean, this cuts deep. I'm so happy that it goes all the way back to 1908. 1908. Well... I'm not going to talk about the 1908 tournament because there's very little out there in terms of uh, information on it. And it doesn't count because there was no English teams involved. 
I'm going to talk about the 1909 Sir Thomas Lipton Trophy. Now, you're probably wondering who Sir Thomas Lipton is. Well, he wasn't born a sir. This is a truly self-made guy. He actually was born to Irish immigrants in Glasgow who'd, who'd escaped from the potato famine. Uh, they had a shop uh, which he worked in and sort of 1860s, early 1870s, he opens his own shop. It's a success. He starts opening up other stores around the UK. And by the end of the 19th century, this guy who's come from very humble roots has turned himself into a millionaire. Okay? And then... It's around that time that he starts a new business that basically immortalises him. He starts selling tea. And you're probably still aware of Lipton Tea, you know, household brand, global famous tea. I am straining my ears for this story, Matt. <laughs> wow. Very good. Well, Just brilliant. Well, so Thomas Lipton, you know, tea, teas of, you know, back, back in sort of the, uh, the late 19th century... Tea's coming across to the UK, you know, but it's it's really a drink of the upper classes. But what Sir Thomas Lipton does in his stores is really brings it to the working class and makes it affordable. And the, sort of the, the rest is history, if you like. You know, he absolutely, uh, you know, creates a dynasty for himself. And as I say, Lipton tea still going today. But you might be thinking, well, what's a, what's a, a businessman got to do with, with the World Cup? And it, it, it's a fair question. Thomas Lipton, or Sir Thomas Lipton, as he's going to become later in his life, is a really keen sportsman. He loves cricket. He loves football. Um, his actual real passion, though, is is yachting. And he he loves being on a boat. He, he, he built his own uh, little toy boat when he was a boy, um, which he would put in the local pond. And he called it the Shamrock. Again, a bit of a, sort of a nod to his parents' Irish, Irish heritage. And... He, he, as he makes his millions, he starts to enter himself into the America's Cup, the yacht race, um, which is, I think, one of the oldest international sporting trophies in the world. But he never won it. He says it was the most elusive piece of metal that he could think of was the, uh, the America's Cup trophy. He couldn't get his hands on it. But one of the things people say about Sir Thomas Lipton is, he was great at marketing and, and promotion, promoting his brand. And he wanted to get his Lipton tea into the American market. So he felt, well, by entering the America's Cup and being sort of this, you know, outgoing, bit of eccentric British businessman, you know, he, that would sort of promote the Lipton tea. And it was a bit of that as well. But he, he really did love his sport. I'm sure if he tried hard enough, the people of Boston would hold a party for him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> We're going to get a lot of these puns today, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for them to the, these jokes to brew, so keep going. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not here to talk about the America's Cup. I'm really, as I say, it's all about the first ever Football World Cup. So... So Thomas Lipton, in 1909, is actually made a Knight Commander of the Grand Order of the Crown of Italy, which I don't know Hold what he on, got. Could you, yeah, it's, can it's, you it's say a, that again? Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Knight Commander of the Grand Order of the Crown of Italy, uh, some sort of honorary title. So he, the Italians love him. And by way of thanks, he says to the Italians, he's going to uh, donate a cup to them to be used for an international football competition. And 
he says, I'll get you a British team and we'll turn that idea that, you know, was, was pretty successful in 1908. It, we'll have another one in 1909, but this time it'll be even more successful because I'm going to get a football association, British team to come over. It's going to be a fully professional tournament. And it's going to be brilliant. We're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's, it this is properly exciting. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I'd love the career trajectory. Like, if the, if Thomas Lipton was on LinkedIn, like none of it would make sense, Matt. <laughs> I mean, you'd be, you'd be reading voluntary work, other interests. You'd be like, no, nah, this guy, this is a spoof account. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a tournament, so Thomas Lipton Trophy, and it's going to feature all-star teams from around Europe, including a team from Britain. West Auckland. West Auckland is a village in County Durham in the northeast of England. Now, it's said to have one of the largest village greens in the country. It's an amateur Northern League club made up of Durham coal miners. It's not what you would call an all-star team, right? <laughs> So what, what, why are they there? Like, it, it, it doesn't really make sense. And there's a lot of speculation, sort of, why West Auckland? Probably the most fun story, but also probably the least plausible, is that there was, uh, they, they approached Woolwich Arsenal, who are, who are WAFC. Uh, they, they're now, uh, as, as listeners may know, the Arsenal that play in the Premier League. And there was a mix-up where the initials of WA... <laughs> FC, but that just sounds so ridiculous. I don't, I don't think that that would be true. Uh, and there's no real reason why you would pick on Woolwich Arsenal ahead of any of the others. Uh, all at the time, Woolwich Arsenal weren't particularly great anyway. And and a West Auckland, a, a West Auckland professional. No, they're an amateur team. As I said, just just coal miners. So I think what happened was, Sir Thomas Lipton or one of his associates approached the English FA or the uh, the British FA to see who might be interested in playing, which club, and they, FA, didn't want anything to do with it. You know, who, who could imagine the English being suspicious of a European uh, activity? But it, it, Come it on, did... Matt, just ease off on the politics. You know I don't like it. I don't <laughs> like often. it when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so with the FA saying, look, we don't want to get involved, he then had to go and find his own team. He'd promised the Italians that they would send over a British team. And one of his colleagues was working part-time as well in the, in the Northern Leagues. So there seems to be perhaps a bit of a, a link there that maybe his colleague, I think, had done some refereeing, maybe sort of tapped up West Auckland. But it really is quite unclear why this lowly team amateur team of, of miners was suddenly being sent to Italy um, to play in the first ever or well, second ever uh, international tournament but the first one with a British team and just to clarify miners they're coal miners aren't they they're mining coal out of the ground they're not under 16 no. or something <laughs> like you know because we if we don't make that explicit <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> um yeah, no, the, the, these these players, these coal miners, most of whom had, had, had never left County Durham, um, were suddenly being told that they were going on a trip to Turin. Um, they had to quit their jobs. A lot of them sold their possessions. Uh, they didn't know if their jobs would still be open when they returned. It's 
you know, it, it's pretty crazy that these guys went for it at all, but they, they showed the spirit of adventure, I guess, and uh, and off they went. So, as I say, West Auckland are, are off to, to Italy, and they're playing against top professional teams. So they've got the German champions, um, Stuttgart Sportfreund, in the semi-finals. They beat them 2-0. And then, in the final, they're playing the Swiss champs, uh, a team called Winterthur, um, who they also beat 2-0 in the final. So... Hold on, you just say this like it's so like matter of fact, but you've you've just skipped over the fact that these coal miners from the northeast of England, like travelling to Turin would be an epic pain in the arse back then. <laughs> like even to get like out of Durham to get down to London would be a mission. And then yeah, to get cool. over the channel and then to get across Europe and then when you get to Turin, you you kind of think well, actually, I prefer it in Durham because it's like it's Turin. It's, it's, it might sound romantic, but it is just full of industry. And, you know, back then it would have been probably quite unclean and, and just, you know, quite aggressive industry. And you've got to play the German champions. You just kind of said that like, oh, yeah, and they, they beat them 2-0. Like, that's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? But it, it doesn't just end there for West Auckland. They go back as the... The world champions, which which is just mad. But but two years later, they're invited back because in 1911, there's going to be the second uh, Sir Thomas Lipton trophy. And again, it's going to be in Italy. But as reigning champions, obviously West Auckland need to go back there and and defend their trophy. So the first up, they're playing Red Star uh, of Switzerland, um, who they beat 2-0. And then in the final, they play a team called Juventus uh, that you might have heard of. Wow. Um, they beat them 6-1 in 1911. On home soil? <laughs> West on home soil? West Auckland 6, Juventus 1. <laughs> Do you know what this is, Matt? This is a battle. They're in Italy. They're from West Auckland, County Durham. This is a battle between tea and coffee, isn't it? <laughs> this is... They're in the. They've they've gone into the the belly of the beast into northern Italy, who are you know espresso drinkers, and they've gone no, no, <laughs> no I'm going to rail against this. I love I, it. I just want a cup of tea. Brilliant. <laughs> Dash of milk, <laughs> three sugars, <laughs> six one. <laughs> so good. Well, Sir, Sir Thomas had stipulated. That if a team ever won the trophy in consecutive years, they would be entitled to keep it. Because, you know, it's pretty difficult to get these trophies, you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of early 20th century, you know, uh, just pre-First World War. You know, you're you're not just knocking up trophies uh, easy, you know. This is a big deal. And it wasn't expected that anyone would win it consecutively. Um, And West Auckland did. So they get to keep it. Keep the trophy. It's wrapped up, <laughs> stitched up, and uh, and they... I mean, that makes their journey back even more stressful. <laughs> it's like not only have they got the stress of coming back to no job, but now they've got to take this valuable object all the way across Europe. Well, yeah, yeah, across... yeah, absolutely right. It is stressful, and the trophy is valuable because, well, this time when they come back in 1909, obviously there'd been great celebrations. You know, West Auckland are the world champions. In 1911, they go back. But the celebrations were a bit short-lived. 
the financial problems that this tour to Turin twice in two years had caused meant that the club were absolutely broke. Um, a lot of the players had lost their jobs and their only asset was the trophy. So wow. they had to find money. They needed £40. So they got an arrangement with a, with a lady called Mrs. Lanchester. Now, Mrs. Lanchester is the, the landlady of the Wheat Chief Hotel. And the Wheat Chief Hotel was the local hotel in, in West Auckland. It was also the headquarters of the club where they used to meet and have their, their meetings. So they, they did a deal with her where she would give them the £40 that they needed to keep the club afloat. And they would give her the trophy um, as a as security. Um, and the agreement was she would keep the trophy until the £40 was paid back. But West Auckland, you know, I guess the, the First World War happened. West Auckland never paid that money back. So the Sir Thomas Lipton trophy was handed over to Mrs. Lanchester in 1911. It remains in her possession for almost 50 years. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> Don't tell me it became a travel lodge. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they track her down. She's moved now. She's living in Liverpool in the 1960s. You know, she, she she's aged. Uh, you know, she's she's a, she's an older lady now. It's it's 50 years later. She's in Liverpool. She's still got the World Cup, the Sir Thomas Lipton Trophy, and the officials of West Auckland uh, want it. So they go to see her. And she won't give it to them. She, well, she won't give it to them without a fight. She ha- really drives a hard bargain. And eventually she'll only give it to them in exchange for £100. So she's... Oh, you know, inflation, she's, I suppose. Yeah, well, years. that's it. Yeah, so fair play to uh, to Mrs. Lanchester. Um, Actually, tr- fair play to her. She's kept hold of that through two world wars. Exactly, yeah. You know, so... And the sinking of the Titanic. So she's she's played a blinder. Yeah. She's definitely been a good custodian. Because you could have given that to some, some unscrupulous landlord and it would have been melted down for scrap. Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. So the trophy the trophy's back with West Auckland. It's, it's the 1960s. It's put on show. But then in 1966... The Jules Rimet Trophy, which is the FIFA World Cup trophy, the sort of official one, uh, which started in 1930. In 1966, that was was stolen. Um, So now West Auckland are a bit... A bit worried that their trophy, the the Sir Thomas Lipton trophy, might be stolen. So it starts. And, and, and this was it was hosted in England, wasn't it, in the nineteen sixty six World Cup? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, and it was stolen in England, wasn't it? It was. It was. So they must be really feeling that their next, you know, number one on the list is Jules Remy, number two, Sir Thomas, Thomas Lipton. Lipton. Exactly. Exactly. So they 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 start to lock it up. I mean, it's still in West Auckland, but I guess they're they're take, taking a bit more care of it. But unfortunately, another 30 years passes. And in January 1994, the trophy, which was now being held at the West Auckland Working Men's Club, was stolen and remains missing to this day. You know, the police have searched for it. There's a, there's a pretty substantial £2,000 reward for any information that leads to it being recovered. But yeah, the, the, the trophy disappeared in 1994 uh, a bit of a bit of a sad ending there, but look, a replica was made, and that is now displayed in the West Auckland Working Men's Club. Yeah, if, if you're ever going into West Auckland, the sign there reads "West Auckland, home of the first World Cup." That is such an incredible story. Like, I feel like there's so many 
loose ends to tie up in that story. Just like what happened to the the players. Obviously, the war happens uh, fairly soon after, but just that the whole experience of which I'm amazed that I've never heard of this story before. I'm a football fan, have been for since I was a boy. I've never heard this story. Yeah, that's it. It's 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 absolutely remarkable. I mean, West Auckland are still going as a as a football club. They now play in the Northern League Division One in 2011-12, and then again in 2013-14. They actually reached the FA Vars. Uh, final. Uh, they got there twice, but lost both games. But yeah, they, you know they were pretty compared to where Juventus were. You know the, the Italian team they beat six one in the final. You know Juventus are, have won the Champions League. They, I think they've won Serie A seventy five times. <laughs> you know they're they a dominant force of European yeah. football. Bankrolled by Fiat. Yeah, like, <laughs> just it, it could not be more different. Could Couldn't it, be more different. You know. And those coal mines as well would be closed down by now. And I mean, wow, what a special thing for just a town to be picked to have that adventure. Yeah, it's a, it's it's. A, I mean, nobody nobody would have predicted them to win it. As I say, that the teams they were coming up with were the champions of you know Switzerland, Germany, uh, France. They some of the best best nations. You know, Italian teams. And uh... was there any reason why? they were able to beat these European teams was the style of football uh, do you know was that any difference were because I've I've read that the teams in northern England were traditionally more successful than the teams from the south of England because they worked in factories they didn't work in a field doing individual jobs they worked as a team so they were more um, likely to pass the ball and make progress up the field whereas the southern teams would take a more individualistic approach, like, and that's where rugby was born out of. Is that you just get the ball and run as far up the field as you can until you get stopped, instead of passing the ball. Where the northern teams could pass the ball and were much, much more able to uh, utilize the team aspect. Do we know if that was the case in in against the European teams? Yeah, look, I, to be honest, I'm not too sure about that. I know that uh, I have heard that before. You know, I think I think the Scots were the first team that, to, to to implement passing. I think prior to that, passing was considered almost cheating, which, which is which is remarkable. You know, it didn't feel it didn't feel sporting to pass. Uh, but whether or not that would fit into this narrative, I actually don't know. So uh, I'm not too sure about how you know tactically they went about these wins. But yeah, nevertheless, you know. Double World Cup winners. What What was the landlady's name? Mrs. Lanchester. So Mrs. Lanchester, I mean, that's a lovely grand name as well. And the fact that she ended up in Liverpool and was still the custodian of this trophy showed that she had some sense of the romance and the beauty of this trophy, that she didn't sell it on, she didn't leave it behind, she didn't treat it, it, it with any disrespect to the point where she actually knew that she could get a bit more money for it. Yeah, exactly, it, yeah. I just find that so lovely in a sense. Not that she drilled them down to squeeze a couple of extra quid out of them, but that she looked after this trophy for all of those years. Just so it shows that it did actually mean something. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's it, it's such, such, such a beautiful uh, romantic story. And when obviously they came for that trophy... Uh, there would have been a bit of a, a to and a fro and a bit of a fight over it, but I suppose it was just a storm and a teacup. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, thanks, thank, thanks so much to everyone for, for listening uh, around the world. If you do have any suggestions for stories, please get in touch with us uh, at thewheelofsport at gmail.com uh, or on Twitter or Instagram at thewheelofsport. Please give us reviews and, and comments and uh, all of that wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Thanks so much, Matt. That was an unbelievable story. It's given me a lot of food for thought. I think I'm going to go away and just research all of this like, like, and find the absolute end detail of it. Brilliance. If anyone's got any suggestions for, for jokes for future episodes for me, much appreciated as well. <laughs> uh, and we'll catch you again for the, another episode of the Wheel of Sport, the greatest sports stories ever told. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks ever so much. Bye.